In this episode of Unraveled, producer Dana Dashuk talks about the current state of women's sports and how the dynamics of the sports industry can shape the future of women's basketball. My name is FOM Fodjo and this is Unraveled. I'm obviously not playing in the NCAA anymore. I'm kind of just watching from the outside, but I feel like there's definitely a conversation that was started for sure last year. Um, that is Quinn, Quinn Dorn's daughter. And so that is like a huge step because at the time we didn't even really talk about it. It was just like, of course we don't have a billboard, you know? Quinn is from Regina, Saskatchewan where she grew up chasing the dream of one day playing pro basketball. Eventually, she went off to Arizona State University to play as a center, and she has now been in Europe for the past five years playing pro. She's also a member of the Canadian national team. When I asked her who she looked up to growing up in the sports world, this is what she had to say. So I looked up to, like, my local university team was my first sort of, like, I wanted to be on the local university team. That was the dream. And then the women who were playing at the Olympics. After that, going into college, people I looked up to were just older teammates. This is an exception compared to the typical LeBron James, Stephen Curry, and Michael Jordan. And to be honest, it caught me off guard. Because for young girls in our generation to have grown up looking up to girls in professional sports world was rare. And Quinn's response isn't an answer we often hear. Usually we do hear LeBron James, Stephen Curry, Michael Jordan, and countless other NBA superstars. But this is the problem, and it has been for so long, that the sports industry has failed to capitalize on women's sports. The sports industry is growing quickly and being marketed like crazy. However, there is one aspect of the sports world that the sports industry has failed to capitalize on, and that is women's sports. There are so many sports we could analyze, but in this episode, we are going to look at the future of women's basketball in America as they rise to the top. We are currently seeing more about female athletes than we ever have before, but they still aren't being included in the same way as men's sports are. Most importantly, the single story that continues to saturate and perpetuate through North America's media is that men's basketball is more worthy than women's basketball in funding, coverage, airtime, and resources. As a result, the women's game remains in the shadows. 2020 brought new heights for the Women's National Basketball Association, or better known as the WNBA. The WNBA has begun to occupy more mainstream media coverage, and in a press conference last year, Kathy Engelbert, the WNBA commissioner, said that the league has seen a 68% increase in the average television ratings for its national games. Even more recently though, in the spring of 2021, Sedona Prince, a forward at the University of Oregon, made headlines when she highlighted the inequalities of the NCAA's women's tournament compared to the men's March Madness tournament. Her series of TikToks and tweets went viral, gaining traction with former and current NBA and WNBA superstars. I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. 
Now, when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. The video shows a comparison between the men's weight room and the women's weight room. The women, they got one stand-up tower with a few little dinky dumbbells and a couple of yoga mats. While the men have a full state-of-the-art gym, close to 20 squat racks, benches, plates, full dumbbell racks, and Olympic lifting platforms. This opened the conversation for more women to speak out about the inequalities of women's sports compared to men's. Throughout the pandemic, female athletes have been able to showcase the inequalities between men and women's basketball, fight for recognition, and change. There has been more coverage of the disparities and inequalities and unfair treatment. In this episode, we will talk to sports economist David Beery, Quinn Dornstadter, and former NCAA D1 athlete and now grad assistant and student coach Savannah Ryer to hear about their perspectives and predictions for the future of women's basketball. Exploring the current narrative and unpacking the single story of basketball told through North American sport media. Historically, there is a disparity between men and women's sports. There always has, and on the path we're on, maybe there always will be. But I want to better understand why things are the way they are. In order to do so, I've invited David Beery, professor of economics at Southern Utah University. He has written two textbooks, over 60 academic publications, and has written for a ton of online publications, including, but not limited to, Forbes.com, New York Times, Atlantic, Huffington Post, and Vice Sports. Here's what he has to say. We are where we are in women's sports because of actions men have taken. Uh, it's, it's not an accident. It's not something that has to be that way. Uh, there's a long history of discrimination against women. If you go back in time, obviously women are actively banned from playing sports. So that's where we start. Uh, but even when the banning stopped, it also becomes the case that men actively discriminate and don't bother to promote women like they promote men. Uh, and it's because the men doing the negotiating didn't think it's that important, so they don't negotiate very hard. And so that's, you see this, you know, over and over again, it's the men making the decision. You know, we very much try and let these people off the hook because we make it sound like they come across the media as if they're totally shocked at these things. I, I'm shocked. How can you be shocked? This has been going on for decades. You've been in charge for decades. How are you shocked? You're not shocked. This is exactly the product of your decision-making. This idea David brought up, that people pretend that they are shocked, is so similar to the perspective Savannah Ryer holds on the changes we are currently seeing. A lot of the time when we would ask, like, why don't we have this or why aren't we able to get this? It was always like, well, we don't bring in enough money or we don't have enough money in the program rather than like, hey, let's find a solution because we work just as hard. We practice just as many hours. We play just as many games. So to not have the same access is ridiculous still considering there is awareness being brought to the situation. It's almost like that fake wokeness that a lot of people in today's age have. Honestly, they'll be like, yeah, we hear you and we're trying to we're trying to fix it but at the same time there's never a solution given so i like to call them fake woke <laughs> yet this brings in the idea that people only care to make a change when people are making a scene and demanding change and it is a constant pressure according to david beery that is what happened with march madness this is the the recurring theme over and over again 
in college sports. It, we are where we are because men made decisions. And what happened this last year is a lot of media attention got focused because of those pictures of the weight room. And it forced the men to make decisions they were not going to make. You know, the, the thing that people should understand is if those pictures of the weight room don't appear, then it stays exactly the way it was. That didn't accidentally happen. That was not an accident. That, that, was a, that was a conscious decision by people in charge. And they were doing what they were doing because they actively discriminate and they don't care. You know, I think that's, that's the issue is that you do get them to change when people force them to focus on them. Um, but that being said, they're only going to change until you feel the storyline changes. Until, you know, the minute the pressure's off them, they'll stop doing it. Because at the end of the day, Mark Emmert doesn't care about women. And I, I think we could establish that very easily by just asking Mark Emmert, and Mark Emmert, by the way, is the head of the NCAA, by asking him directly, how many women's sporting events do you actually go to? I mean, are you going to these things? I, I don't see him at these things. Um, if you're not going, I, I assume you don't care. This past year, we saw Sedona Prince blow up on TikTok for highlighting the disparities between the men and women's tournament during March Madness. Now, months later, after constant demand for change and pressure, the NCAA has finally switched over to have the women's tournament under the March Madness title. I asked David for some insight on why things happened the way they did, looking inside the bubble on what Sedona recorded. David explains that this was a catalyst. We're able to see very clearly a disparity in the way they set up the, the tournament in a way that we probably couldn't have seen before. And that led up to a national conversation about this. We learned certain things about women's basketball uh, that I don't think most people knew about. One is that March Madness, the label only was being applied to men, so that reduced the marketing of women. Secondly, we learned that the rights to women's basketball were being bundled together with the rights of a lot of other sports. They weren't being sold separately. That was reducing the value of women's sports. So when men, when the men were talking about what revenue do women bring in, they had set it up that it wouldn't bring in as much revenue. And this has been a really frequent issue when it comes to women's sports, is that it's not just that women bring in less revenue than men, it's that men negotiate it so that, that it's even less than it would be. Uh, and that makes women's sports look smaller than it actually should be. I'm going to take a moment here to talk about Title IX and what Title IX means in regard to college sports. Title IX was implemented in 1972. And it states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation or be denied the benefits of or be subject to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Now, to put this into perspective, Title IX gives women athletes the right to equal opportunities in sports and educational institutions that receive federal funds from elementary schools to colleges and universities. But Title IX doesn't protect everything, and although it's supposed to make things more accessible and more equal, this isn't necessarily true. So I'm going to hand it over to David to talk more about this. If you go to, to an issue like Title IX, so Title IX is, is significant in that and it does make U.S. women's sports uh, better than what we typically see in other countries, because it does force high schools and colleges to spend more money on, on girls and women in sports than they were going to otherwise. But I think there's a sense people have that Title IX made it equal, and it's not equal. It is still the case. Most schools do not comply with Title IX. They also lie about Title IX. Uh, they say, hey, we, we cut men's sports to make Title IX happen. That's not true. No, you didn't. That's, that's all made up. See, there's no Title IX for production. They're not gonna, there's no, nothing to enforce you to do that. You invest 
as much as you want. And so what they do is is they they don't invest much in the production value because they, they don't they don't think they they don't think it's worth anything. So they don't want to do it. And so so the production isn't as good, and then the the, the audience is going to be reduced because of that. And there's nothing that makes them change. They're they're going to keep doing that. And so it's it's just it's the problem is the media is entirely biased to a small segment of the population. And, and that's really true of society in general, anyways. So people who look like me are in the United States one third of the population. Um, but we occupy like 80% of the leadership position. I don't know. I, I think we talk a lot. I don't know that anything specifically changes because the decision makers are still men and the men are deciding what goes on and the men are choosing what they like. Men choose to put on the things that they enjoy watching. And I think, I think people have this idea that they're somehow doing some kind of big marketing survey that says what they should put on. And that is not what they're doing. Um, and it's because... You know, most of the sports media is men. Most of the sports media is white men. And they're the ones who dictate what's going on. And they're doing their preferences. The underrepresentation and promotion of women in sports are much due to the people that run the sports industry. If we look at a study conducted by Cookie, Messner, and Musto in 2015, they examined the coverage of women's sports, finding that the sport media industry is primarily flooded with a male workforce with 95% of sports news anchors being male and only a minuscule 3.2% of total sports broadcast time being dedicated to women. Now, this is a little bit outdated, so obviously the numbers have shifted, but it's still relevant. The sport media world has long been powered by a Euro-Western, white cis male man perspective, highlighting that men's sports are more desired, deserve more attention, and are more profitable. The sport media world has been described as one that is run by men to promote and celebrate the successes of men in men's sports. As a result, the sport media industry has failed to include and promote women's perspectives, narratives, and sports as a whole. Quinn echoed this idea when she told me a story about her time playing on the women's basketball team at Arizona State University. Well, my program was like pretty successful for uh, most of the time that I was there. There was a year that we were... Um, a top top 10 I think we might have been number eight at the time program in the nation you know so like pretty pretty strong program and our men's program was unranked not really notable but I remember having to walk by every day this giant billboard with the men's pg on it the men's point guard and just looking at that and just kind of I mean we would just look at it and be like wow could you imagine being up there and this is our like top 10 program uh, looking at an unranked point guard and you know it's not even really about the rankings so much but just yeah the fact that like we didn't get that sort of thing at the time we didn't even really talk about it it was just like of course we don't have a billboard you know to look at this more deeply I asked Savannah how she sees these inequalities in her day-to-day -day life now as a grad assistant coach at the University of Nevada and also previously as a student athlete at University of Hawaii. I think especially in the position that I'm in now as a student coach and seeing the other side of athletics I didn't see a lot of the behind the scenes that went on in the fight that continues to happen daily for our female athletes here. Just to put it in perspective, we had to have, which thank goodness, like I'm at a university that cares about their female athletes and understands 
that there's still inequality going on. Um, but recently we just had an event. It was a fundraiser for women's sports to be able to feed our female athletes the same as we feed our sports like football and basketball, all our top sports. So it it's nice that they care, but at the same time, it's really sad that like we don't have enough people to support us to even feed our female athletes on a daily basis. Whereas football, basketball, men's basketball, all of those sports have excessive amounts of money to put towards feeding, taking care of, housing, um, all of their athletes. So that's kind of a perspective thing that I didn't realize was still going on. This is so true, not only for Savannah and her experiences, but for so many other female athletes. So I wanted to know what can be done or what is currently being done in her life or on her team to make long-term changes for the future of women's basketball. Or more prospectively, what she thinks can be done in the grand scheme of things. As a coach now, seeing um, how much we have to fight to get things done and the excuse always being like the budget, the budget this, we don't have enough for this. And then on the flip side, to be under a really strong, powerful coach that will take money out of her own pocket to give towards our program because we can't get it from certain departments. Like to see that it gives me hope because she's using, you know, she's in it for the right reasons. She's also using what she's paid to give back to the program and to give back to women's basketball. Um, I think that's huge. And I think that's something that, you know, a lot more college coaches are starting to do. Um, I've seen, at Old Miss coach, her name's Coach Yo, but um, the SEC coaches in particular are making a lot more money now, thankfully, because they have powerhouse Don Staley at South Carolina right now, who just signed that huge deal for women's basketball. She just signed, I think it was like 22 million year, seven year extension. She's kind of brought their pay up in the SEC. So like if the top coach getting paid in that conference is that much, like schools are starting to have to compete with that pay. So like the coach at Ole Miss, she's starting to use her salary sometimes to cash app or Venmo ladies on campus that are in sororities or just use her money to gain support for the program through what she's doing. But at the same time, like she's a women's basketball coach and like she's able to do that type of stuff because the pay is raising and people are challenging those school officials to start giving equal pay and to start rewarding these teams for great performances and actually caring about the success of women's basketball rather than just kind of hiding them and like hoping that everyone does okay. But yeah, I've seen a lot of change just within the two, with the year I've been removed from basketball, the NIL is the biggest one. It looks like it's on the upward trend of being, you know, better for female athletes, but we just have to continue to fight and um, not be satisfied with what we're given because a lot of times when people give you things in the heat of the moment, it's just to quiet you and hope that you don't speak back up. So just to continue to use our voice and advocate for all the female athletes to come after us, I think is super important. The disparity in funding in women's sports seems comical. It seems unimaginable. And the fact of the matter is that there were measures put in place to try and protect this. Things like Title IX that were supposed to protect funding for women's sports and are supposed to try and make things even. But that's just not the case. 
David Beery is going to talk more about the funding and explain the fundamentals and economics of this current situation. We saw that in COVID when athletic directors have an opportunity to cut sports, men's sports, to transfer money to men's basketball football, they will take. And so during COVID, suddenly they were telling us, oh, we have to cut men's soccer because of COVID. We're like, well, men's soccer, you know, University of Cincinnati did that. It was like men's soccer cost $500,000 to run the program. They're like, you have assistant coaches on your football team that make more than $500,000. This cannot be a COVID reaction. This is, I wish to cut men's soccer because I want to take $500,000 and go spend it on something else. And what you spend money on is men's football and men's basketball. That's not COVID. That's what you want to spend money on. You know, USA Today has actually done a, a several stories on this where they found, like at Arizona State, they laid off several smaller positions because of COVID. And then two or three weeks later, they fired the head coach of the football team and it cost them $25 million. And you're like, I thought you had no money. You didn't have any money three weeks ago. Now you have $25 million to fire your head football coach. Yeah, well, that was three weeks ago. Well, what changed in three weeks? Well, the football coach is horrible. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that, that, that didn't change the money situation. Oh, yeah, well, that's this is a problem for a different thing. I, I think the same thing happened in, for Title IX for decades. They would tell this story over and over again. We cut men's wrestling. We cut men's gymnastics because of women. No, you didn't. That's not why you did that. You cut those programs and you use women as your excuse because you wanted to spend more money on football and men's football. Because you, these programs were so small, you had the money to do that. And you could have simply added, if, if it was Title IX, you could have added just another women's sport to balance it. It wouldn't have made any difference. You had the money to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to spend money on football and basketball. There's also this big insistence that, and this comes up a lot too, is that women's sports have to make money. Uh, no one, no one expects men's sports to make money. That's not a requirement, right? We've invested millions of dollars in in minor league football, both the international version in Major League Soccer and the American version, and none of that has paid off. There's no money in minor league football. Uh, at any level, and there never is going to be. Minor league baseball doesn't make money either. It's been around for 150 years. It doesn't make money. Uh, minor league sports don't make money. Uh, that's That's been proven over and over again. And yet men will invest millions in the latest minor league thing, and they lose their money, but they just keep doing it. And then you say, why don't you put you know, $100 million into the WNBA or $100 million in National Women's Soccer League? Because that's not a minor league. That's a major league. And they're like, well, I, I don't want to do that. I don't like women's that's, and that's it. I mean, they don't say that, but it's clearly that's got to be the case because it doesn't make any sense. David highlighted that people think that women's sports need to make money, and that's just not true. This can be seen directly with the NBA and WNBA, which, if you didn't know, share the majority of their owners. The NBA's commissioner, Adam Silver, had voiced his concerns in 2019, reasoning that the WNBA was not profitable and was draining the NBA's resources. Yet, the NBA was not opposed to investing its money in another one of its affiliated leagues, that it just started, a newer league that wasn't generating revenue either. The announcement of this was significant, considering that an 18-year-old out of high school with a select contract would be making twice as much as the WNBA's league MVP at the time, and more than the max WNBA contract. The league which I'm referencing to is the G League, and it was recorded with low attendance, low national interest, low revenue, and less entertaining gameplay. Yet, the NBA continued to pour money into this league because they saw it as a good opportunity for developing new players. Beery has previously explained that by the NBA choosing to look past the financial struggles of the G League, 
continuing to saturate and pay their minor league players instead of investing in the WNBA means the NBA sees the WNBA as a cost and the G League as an investment. Yet, the financial situation is changing in the NCAA, and furthermore, in all women's professional ball. But let's key in on the NCAA here. As of recently, this past year, the NCAA released new NIL rules. NIL stands for Name, Image, and Likeliness. This is going to help female basketball players receive more recognition of the inequalities they face and possibly more mainstream media coverage for their game. But I'm not in these shoes, so to speak on this is Savannah to share her experiences and what it looks like right now as a student coach and also her previous experiences as a student athlete. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that NIL is a game changer. At the same time, is, is it really that relevant to women's sports right now? Um, unless you're like, I know at Fresno State, the Kevin Deere twins, I don't know if you've seen them on TikTok, but they've done a great job of branding themselves. They're two twins that play women's basketball. So I've seen obviously change in that and females being able to make money off of their social media presence and just being an athlete. But I think for us right now, it's learning to like use that social media presence in a really positive, empowering way. But at the same time, like learning to really empower female athletes through what we post um, is super important. And I think that those people with those big platforms, like if they continue to do it the right way, then it'll open up doors for all the young female athletes to come behind them. I think female athletes are starting to do a really good job of kind of self-marketing themselves on social media. You're seeing, especially with TikTok and Instagram, they're taking advantage of those audiences and really getting the word out. So even though a lot of times it's more about like, oh, this girl's really pretty, but she also plays basketball. They're kind of changing the image of what we used to be perceived as, which was like not feminine females playing a male game. Now it's like, wow, she's beautiful and she can play basketball. Like that's pretty cool. And even though I'm not a big fan of romanticizing basketball because females look beautiful, like at the same time, it is helping our game. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's a big reason we're seeing um, the media go up. Central to the idea of women in sports and the problems they face is the way in which women are perceived in the sports world. Sports have frequently been referred to as a gendered space. This is problematic as the history of women's sports has continuously highlighted femininity and sexualized its players, perpetuating a perception of female athletes to be showcased as more feminine than to be showcased as a powerful or skillful athlete. The sports industry has been designed and maintained by hegemonic masculine culture, bringing forth the idea that being both female and an athlete is a paradox in itself. When women are included in sports coverage, their representation is presented as the ideals of society, sometimes hiding their successes, achievements, and confident personas. Yet, things might be changing as college athletes are able to take control of this narrative and professional players have their own platforms to speak on. In a press conference this fall, Sedona Prince said that the top seven or eight performing students for NIL marketing are female. It is apparent that there is an interest in women's sports, but they just aren't being marketed in this way. Despite the societal perception that sports fans do not want to watch women's basketball, a study conducted by Nielsen Sports in 2018 found that 84% of sports fans were interested in women's sports. 
This is evident with the viewership of the women's 2018 U.S. Open finals between Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka. Viewership reached roughly 3.1 million, surpassing the men's final match the following day by 50%. So, why do we continue to see a disparity of women's sports, particularly women's basketball, being broadcasted through mainstream sport media? So I'm going to answer your question very easily. Do we see any long-run change? This is the way to answer the question. You go to ESPN's front page, okay, and start scrolling down. So now we've been talking about this now for a year. So if you start scrolling down and ask yourself, what are the stories on ESPN's front page? And scroll down until you find a story on women. So there is a story on their headlines about UConn. Their star players isn't a story. So there's one. But if you go down and you look at the pictures, how long does it take me to find a picture of a woman who's an athlete? And the answer is, I'm still scrolling, I'm still scrolling, I'm still scrolling, I'm still scrolling. Uh, nope, still scrolling. Still scrolling, still scrolling, still scrolling. Oh, I found one. Yes, there's a story on USA Women's Soccer, and it must be three-quarters of the way down. So there, that's one. That's the first picture. So every other picture, until you get three-quarters of the way down ESPN's front page, is a man playing sport. And, that's, and that tells you right there the disparity in coverage. Because if it were equal, there would be women and men both all over the page. But there aren't women and men all over the page. There's just men on the page. And men and men and men and men and men and men and men. And it's not just the major sports they're covering. I mean, we got, we got all sorts of sports being covered that involve men. Um, and so... You know, they just don't, they don't cover women. And, and when they do cover women, it's, it's sporadic. You can't count on it. Uh, there was a, I was involved in a story at Bloomberg Television um, last week. And one of, the, one of the comments made by one of the people they interviewed is that women sports fans are forced to be technologically savvy because they have to know how to find the coverage. You can't expect them to put it in a place where you're going to know where it is. And so women's sports fans are far more technologically savvy than, than men's sports fans simply because they have. Two years ago, the WNBA basketball schedule on TV was, I don't know that it, uh, this is completely true, but it did seem to be true. I think they managed to broadcast every single game at a different time than every other time. So it was like 2 o'clock on a Saturday and 11 o'clock on a Thursday. And, and you're like, are you just picking these times randomly? Are you making this as difficult as possible? Uh, because when you come to men's sports, I mean, we have a thing called Monday night football. I mean, that tells you what night it's going to be on. It's Monday night. You know, we don't do that in women's sports. There's no Monday night WNBA. It's, it's all very inconsistent. And so every week you have to check. Is it on? Is it on? Is it, where is it on? Where would I find it? And it's like women, that's, that's the way women's sports are. And men's sports, you know, during the college basketball season, uh, ESPN does Tuesday night men's college basketball. And you know it's going to be Tuesday night. You know that's what they're going to show Tuesday night. And it's like, so you're making this as easy as possible for men who are sports fans. Like, well, Tuesday night, you're going to be watching that. Okay. And for women, it's like, when are you going to show a women's game? Well, we shall win sometimes. They're here and there. And you're like, but I don't have any way of knowing when they're going to be. You know. So you learn to check the schedule all the time. Is there anything on right now at all that I could watch? And, and it's, it, it becomes, it's much more of a challenge. Currently, we see a lot of unfair treatment toward women's sports and women's basketball compared to male counterparts. 
what will the future of women's basketball look like? And will it ever be comparable to men's basketball? I do think in the future, it's all going to be different. And I think we're going to look back on this. It's the same thing with respect to racial discrimination. It's all frustrating. It, it takes so long to get change. Uh, the people who resisted the change all look very ridiculous historically. They all look very silly. I, I, I don't think people quite get that. I, I, I wish people would pick up on that storyline, that when you're resisting these changes, you're going to be the villain in history. That's who you're going to be remembered as. And you may think that you're a perfectly wonderful person, but the fact that you couldn't get this issue right means that people in the future are going to be making fun of you. Maybe if we said it that way to them, maybe they would pick up on this. Is this really how you want to be remembered? Because it's all going to change in the future. And in the future, when women's sports is much bigger, they're going to look back on your resistance to all this, and they're going to go, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Why were you like that? And you're going to have a hard time explaining that, that that's how you were behaving. And so maybe that would make a difference. I, I do think in the future it'll be different. Right now it's a little different. Well, I, I, I do think, though, so in the short run I am pessimistic, but in the long run I am optimistic. So in the long run, the WNBA will be will, will take off. It, it's already starting to take off. Um, but it, it's going to take uh, just two or three more decades to get to a point where it's going to look like the NBA. And the reason why is because... Because what you're asking for at a, in, a, in a professional league is you want the fans to develop uh, an emotional attachment to something that doesn't actually exist. There is no such thing as a Washington Mystic or an L.A. Spark or a Minnesota Lynx. Those things don't exist. But you want people to spend their lives emotionally attached to them. In the same way they're attached to Boston Celtics and L.A. Lakers and Dallas Cowboys and things like that. Those things don't exist either. But People spend their entire lives. I asked my, my sports economics class. I, I had a fan uh, in my sports econ class who's a fan of hockey, and he's a Pittsburgh Penguin fan. And I said, how many, how often do you think about the Penguins? And he's like, every day. See, that's how a sports fan is, every day. So I grew up in Detroit. I'm a Lions fan. How many days of the year do I read a story about the Detroit Lions every day? It's a totally pointless endeavor. They're never going to win. And I, I've wasted my entire life following this team. But I still look at them every day. The head men's basketball coach at, at my school, uh, Southern Utah University, is also from Michigan. He's also a Lions fan. And he does the same thing I do every day. Every day we think about it. And what you want is you want to get your fan to do the same thing with the WNBA. So, you know, I'm also a Minnesota Lynx fan. So I spend every day thinking about that, too. So what you've got to get a collection of fans who want to do the same thing and they want to spend every day talking about this and thinking about this. But that takes decades because typically you inherit your fandom from your parents. And so it just takes a long time for that to happen. You, you can't start a league. National Women's Soccer League is only a few years old. You there's no parents there at this point. Uh, and there's no history. And so, see, that makes all the difference. The history is what makes a big part of the fandom experience give you an example of how history plays a role in men's sports. They made a comment last night during the Monday football game about a player who he went off the field, he was hurt, and then he came back on and he intercepted a pass. And Chris Collinsworth said it was a Willis Reed moment. Okay, now that only makes sense if you know the history that Willis Reed did this in 1973. In order for that to happen, you have to have the history. Right now in the National Women's Soccer League, nobody could tell a story like that because the league is six years old. So there's no way to tell a story. You know, 50 years ago, this happened. 
And see, those kind of stories are what make the experience more interesting and more relatable, that we all have these common memories, and so we can relate them to what we're watching right now. But in order for that to happen, the memories have had to have happened. And women's sports isn't far enough along that we have those memories, and that that reduces the experience because it hasn't happened. But in 30 years, 30 years from now, people are going to be talking about things Diana Taurasi did or Maya Moore did or whatever, and they're going to say what this person did is similar to what Diana Taurasi did 30 years ago, and that's going to mean something to WNBA fans because they're going to remember all that. And so that's going to make that experience so much better. Because, But you got to wait. you got to wait for the history to happen so that you can actually tell those stories. I tell students this, LeBron James has meaning because Michael Jordan existed, and Michael Jordan had meaning because Dr. J existed, and Dr. J had meaning because Elgin Baylor existed. But when Elgin Baylor came around in 1961, he had no meaning at all because people were like, what the hell is he doing? Well, he dunks a lot. Okay, no one's ever done that before. So there's no, there's no context. There's no story you can tell. Um, and so all of these things matter because there was some sort of history you can compare it to. And when women's sports, that will happen. And then it'll be just as big. And when it does happen, you know, you will see, you will see more of the coverage go because there'll be, it'll be then obvious where the fans are. What I think is frustrating from a women's sports fan is that women have to constantly prove that there's an audience. Um, and men just simply don't have to do that. And for them, the audience is giving to them. You know, minor league football gets front page coverage on ESPN's website. You know, like, you know, these are leagues that last eight weeks. Why are you giving them front page coverage? And it's like, because the white guy who's doing the, who's deciding what goes on, I go, well, I like it. They stunt, you, you, that's, not, that's not a marketing service. It's your own preferences. You're just marketing yourself. So that's just ridiculous. So that's, you know, that's what's irritating. So I, I think eventually women's sports gets big enough that it proves that it has to get the coverage. But it's a shame that we have to get go that way. There's a long and complex history of women's basketball in North America. The WNBA has been around since 1997, and the first intercollegiate women's game was Stanford versus California in 1896. David Beery explained that the majority of the inequalities we see in women's sports lies in the enthusiasm of the owners. Owners and higher-ups of the sports industry and sports teams love men. It's mostly because they are men and they picture themselves playing as these men, almost as though it's a real-life fantasy team. These owners are living vicariously through their teams and their players, and this is something that they cannot do with women's sports. This is why men will continue to sink money into a failing team or league despite countless losses and failure to generate revenue, but are more likely to abandon ship when it's a female team. It's because they want to be these players. It's because they envision themselves as these players. Fury explained this through an NFL reference, for those of you who may be familiar. It's with the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers was first created by Art Rooney. In Rooney's biography, he said that he continuously put money into this failing league because he loved it, and it is that simple. The men that run the sports industry, own these teams, power these leagues, and run the media are quick to abandon ship when they do not see immediate success in women's sports. Barry talked about the possibility of change, coming to the conclusion that until more women are in power in sports, owning teams and leagues, and having their presence in the media, the importance of men's sports will continue to dominate the narrative, and women's sports will fail to receive proper funding and recognition. Now, I want you to think back to the beginning of the podcast, when I introduced Quinn Dorn's daughter. 
Quinn can speak to this like no one else can, as this is her job. She lives this, breathes this, and she sees this every day. I'm going to leave you with what Quinn had to say, because what she had to say will hit you in the heart. And I hope that through all of this conversation, what she has to say really hits home with you. Because for me, I know it did. So with that being said, here you go. There's so much of a market that hasn't even been tapped yet that it makes me really excited because there's so much that we can do with this whole side of sports that's been being largely ignored. It's hard to say if, for example, women's sports will ever reach the same level of success as men's sports just because I, I mean, I don't know and we're far from it still, but I don't even think we're necessarily ready to talk about that yet. I think that first, we just want to talk about equal opportunity or fair opportunity and, you know, just like trying to get that base foundation the same first and where they end up is to me not at all the issue. I think that like naturally nobody nobody has ever really tried to say that men's and women's sports are exactly the same because they're not. Anyone who is really kind of an advocate for this sort of stuff is not trying to say men and women are the same. They're, they're obviously not. There's biological differences. Those sorts of things translate to differences on the court too. It is, there are differences, of course. But I think what we're really trying to talk about is fair access to resources, to media attention, to marketing, all those sorts of things, to just kind of valuing women's sports and destigmatizing it for young athletes, for all athletes, honestly. That's kind of what we should be talking about right now instead of trying to, you know, are women and men the same? Of course they're not. But there's the first steps that we can take to get there. And with that, we've made it to the final episode of Unraveled, a series about what the future of society could look like post-pandemic. We hope that listening to this series has helped you think about the ways in which society could look very different from what we know it to be. That's all for today. I'm your host, F.O.M. Fojo. Our associate producer is Taha Hashmani, and our executive producer is Elena DeLuigi. Special thanks to John Powers for composing our theme music. Ben Shelley for creating our podcast artwork. Our professor Amanda Capito, Lindsay Hanna and Angela Glover.